first we started walking. Go walking! <laughs> then we learned to swim. <laughs> then we built a little boat. We couldn't all get in. Then he said, buy a motor car. We bought a black sedan. We started out for London town And that is where our troubles began The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Eight, seven, this is roll six, 29, five, four, 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that, we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone up with so many songs, but I've got, like, my quota of tunes for the next 10 years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 48 Welcome back to episode 48. Yes, that's right, I can scarcely believe it myself, but we've nearly completed 50 episodes. It's small wonder I needed a rest. I know a number of you were concerned about the extended break. Special thanks must go to Brutal Beatles who made a generous donation on buymeacoffee.com forward slash whatpod as an incentive to get me working. You too can make a donation here and leave a comment. Mike who bought me three coffees left me this lengthy note which I'll read to you now. Nick Thank you for building this time machine. It's a pleasure sitting in with you and the Beatles and friends in early January 1969 at Twickenham. After hearing your podcast, I'm seeing the great Get Back series a bit differently now. Although Get Back is an amazing work and Peter Jackson had a huge challenge on how to connect hours and hours of sound and picture, I wonder if one too many editing liberties were taken in creating scenes that never happened or happened very differently. For example, the group hug in Get Back That Never Was, or shell-shocked Verge of Tears Then There Were Two Paul, when he was really just being chatty and casual, as your show makes clear. And so many other more subtle Get Back distortions that your podcast is revealing, like how George had never reacted to John's harsh mockery of his song I Me Mine by defiantly telling John, I don't give a F if no one likes it as Get Back has us believe, as Winter of Discontent makes it clear that George had said those words only to Ringo and in a more playful spirit, or hearing on your podcast how George whistles for the food server during the dry bun snack, when in Get Back the whistling is muted, as if to airbrush George's manners. 
So thanks for setting the record straight. By the way, I hope you let us know who makes the powerful music for the show's opening. I love the bass line and the guitar sound and some cool folky background music. Also, I really enjoy your impersonations when you dramatise the quotations from your research. Cool touch. So thank you again, Nick. I hope you soon feel better and shipshape. P.S. Take all the time you need as I think we all savour your podcast and will always be here for you as your loyal listeners. Um, well, Mike, I hate to break it to you, but a lot of the uh, powerful music that you hear on this podcast is actually library music, which I downloaded from YouTube. Or it's some loops that are on GarageBand that I just constructed myself. I did choose them myself, though. Anyway, my recommendation this episode is a YouTube channel belly button window a really forensic and detailed retelling of the history of Jimi hendrix it gives you a real feeling of how ridiculously quickly his career took off after landing in the uk in september of 1966 highly recommended john and yoko have now arrived on the twickenham soundstage but before we head over here's the story so far for episode 47 George arrives making his excuses for being late and as Paul plays piano against the backdrop of Echo, he gets out his Gibson guitar. Glyn can be heard asking if it's a hummingbird model. George says no, it's a J200. But instead of playing guitar, George gets behind Ringo's drum kit to accompany Paul playing piano. The boom mic picks up Linda talking to Michael about her daughter Heather. As George and Paul finish their improvisation, there's a round of applause from the onlookers. Paul responds saying, Ronnie Scott's tonight, man. A reference to the jazz club of the same name. George offers to demo his folk blues for Paul and Ringo. Glynn looks for something to amplify the acoustic. As George starts the performance, Paul vocalises a piano accompaniment. Glynn's attempt to mic the guitar leads to howling feedback. As Glynn explains the reason for the feedback, Paul suggests they build some kind of box for George to stand in, with just his head sticking out. George plays through his song and it's clearly captured the imagination of the crew and his bandmates, who've been looking for an upbeat tune since rehearsals began. Paul asks if George has lots of words, but like Paul, George has barely any so far and is improvising the rest. As George works on an intro for the song, Paul laments the difficulty in miking up an acoustic guitar. George, on the other hand, doesn't accept that it's difficult since it's been done many times before. As Paul points out, Dylan at the Albert Hall. As John and Yoko arrive, they ask for toast and tea, which really is the fuel that keeps these sessions going. George demos his song again, now Johnny's here. Johnny's not disparaging this time. George describes the sound he's looking for as skiffly like the quarryman. Paul describes George's composition to John as his last night song. They then discuss George Gow's column in the Daily Mirror, which is against the legalisation of cannabis. All Beatles, Byron Ringo and Yoko take part in this discussion. Ringo is with Michael and Linda once again discussing the audience for the show. Linda agrees with Ringo's points that their core audience is in Britain and America. John and Paul jam on For You Blue, more or less in tune with George. John suggests obscure lyrics to George. John tries to move the mic from the piano for his vocal, causing more feedback. 
Glyn comes over. John asks what all the mics surrounding him do. Glyn explains that the piano mic that caused the feedback just needs turning down, and that's what he does. Paul's bass is plugged in, which is a sign that rehearsals are finally underway. And so let's rejoin them. John is discussing with George a guitarist they saw last night. Frustratingly, I can't hear who John and George are talking about here. The sound is obscured by beeps on the tape and other conversations. It's most likely this guitarist appeared on Late Night Lineup yesterday. Sadly, the listings for this show don't record who the guests were, this being a live show and all. And it looks like this show may have been another casualty of the BBC's policy of wiping video archives to reuse the tape. It's possible that John could be referring to Fleetwood Mac. John name drops their appearance on Late Night Lineup on January the 21st, and he was known to be a fan of their work. And from what I've read online, no one can source this exact appearance either. The guitar technique they're both admiring and John is attempting to demonstrate is called legato. The musical term derives from the Italian term legare, meaning tied together. Legato refers to a string of sustained notes with a continuous flow. It doesn't just refer to guitar playing. It is also a term used in classical singing, in violin playing and many other instruments capable of fluid continuous phrases. On guitar, it has been a traditional flamenco technique called legado in Spanish from the early 20th century. On electric guitar, Players like Jimi Hendrix were experimenting with the technique as it gave the impression that he was playing the guitar one-handed. The effect is a combination of hammer-ons fretting a note after it's plucked, pull-offs lifting your finger off of a note after it's plucked, and glissandos shifting to another note by sliding up and down the fretboard. The combination can give the impression of very fast guitar playing, which is obviously impressing John, George and Paul. It has to be said, however, I can't find an example of any of them using the technique in these sessions or for Abbey Road. Paul calls for a plec. That's a guitar pick to you and me. Paul leads the band into a jam. Ringo plays along, followed by John and George. Yeah, I'm 
John improvises some scat lines. John doesn't know what day it is. He doesn't know who Jesus was and what praying is. John offers to learn George's song. is thinking about a different instrumentation. Paul suggests they follow the same format as the last two days, running through the completed songs first, before learning George's song. John says he wants to do Across the Universe today. This is our format. Yes, They start as usual with two of us. John still hasn't learnt the lyrics and calls for the words. Paul wants the instruments to turn down so they can hear the vocals. changes from the chugging to just strumming. He calls it pathetic. 
John offers his part to George. George, unusually for a lead guitarist, is an excellent rhythm player. Not so much actual speed, it's just keeping us. Just yeah, I know, us, yeah. But it's more, yeah. They lurch into another version, but Paul stops it, saying it's not so much about the speed as the rhythmic feel. He plays accents to demonstrate. One, two, three, four. George chugs the guitar part all the way through. We're going Much all that then. Yes. It's like okay. We should have the. We never got into this yet. Paul stops the performance again. He thinks the chugging guitar is too much now. They agree to change the rhythm for the bridge. Just be going, yeah. Stop doing that, yeah, bro. I don't know what I was doing. You know. it Okay, well, I'll just go into whatever I was doing before. It's just, a, you know, if everyone changes, we might hit it. Yeah. If everyone does what they're not doing on the other one. Do I change? Okay. So go from the top. One, two, three, four. A slightly tetchy exchange between Paul and John captured in the Let It Be film. Having already complained that he couldn't hear the vocal, Paul snaps at John to sing into his microphone. John replies, Don't sort of bitch about it or we'll never get through it. John comes in too early, Paul corrects him. The guitars try something different for the bridges. George has a suggestion for the ending, but Paul wants a guitar line from George all the way through, which he's been indicating since the beginning of the rehearsals.
sounds like George is instructing Mal or Kevin to find his acoustic strings in his guitar case. offers the lead part to John. John says he can't play it and sing at the same time. George looks for the notes that Paul is singing. Just every time we do it, remember that bit. Do you take a, a riff or something there? Even if it's on our way back home. You know, it doesn't have to sort of start right where you start. You go on our way Paul calls for another run through. John interrupts saying that they need to work on their parts for the bridge section. Paul has an idea for a harmony, a vocal backing that John and George can sing. George talk about their guitar parts. Paul rejoins the conversation with two strong suggestions. The two things I think of both corny, but something better than them would be like ooze. A little bit of beetle magic as John and George slot into a vocal stack behind Paul. skeptical about how well they will sound on the live TV show with just John and George singing back up. His two suggestions are overdubbing them later or getting some backing singers in. Paul still thinks getting extra performers in is too much and he doesn't mean in a good 
He'd be 60s kind of way. The only, yeah. the, the only thing about this live TV show when we get two of us bagging the other one with the roots. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it can be done, they can't have the people doing it. It's just been two doing it. Yeah, we used to always do it, and it always used to sound like two people doing it. And then we started, we used to, I mean, even if we don't track the vocals, we just have a straight vocal, we track the ooze. Yeah. You know, maybe we could just get in a few raylettes in the back. You know, a few that. Um, I'd like people so to do you get a mic for phasing on uh, yeah, yeah, well, I'm not going to tell you the story about voice. Alex and his foot pedal, am I? Paul wonders if there's some kind of live vocal effect like phasing that they could add. John makes a comment here. I could tell you a story about Alex and his foot pedal, which elicits laughter. Clearly, Magic Alex is becoming a bit of a running joke with the Beatles. Well, no, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> you can even double track it when you mix it. Yeah, right, but no, for the show, so that actually... Hey, we can so that on the same, 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 same three girl singers, just... just so there's there's three, three men, men I like. Three men singing just a bad guy. So we good, wouldn't we? We can get the Dallas players, you know, the battle, like... We got plays on the guitar, which he probably hasn't made yet, which phases it as you play it. Glyn has joined in, suggesting they could sweeten the audio once the show has been taped. Paul would rather the audience hear the effect, not just the TV viewer. The concept of fake or doctored live recordings wasn't a new one. It had always been a difficult task to capture the vitality of a live recording, while at the same time making a commercially viable product for the record-buying public. The odd bum note, flat vocal or mistimed drum strike might slip by the live audience in the excitement of the moment, but to have these mistakes preserved for posterity on vinyl and be exposed by repeated plays was nobody's idea of a commercial product. As far back as 1959, Peggy Lee's Beauty and the Beat, intended to be a live recording, had to be re-recorded in the studio due to technical glitches and then overdubbed with audience noise. Sometimes the audience was invited to the studio to enable some kind of control. Such was the case with Cannonball Azalee's Mercy 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 live at The Club. The club in question being sufficiently obscure as to not warrant too much scrutiny. The Rolling Stones got live if you wanted was by and large a live recording, but for two tracks that were obvious studio recordings, overlaid with screams to give the impression that they were part of the set. However, Later in 1969, their Get Your Ya-Ya's Out live set would be sweetened with overdubbed vocals by none other than Glyn Johns, an approach that he is suggesting for this project. Other artists such as the Beach Boys and the 13th Floor Elevators, as well as dynamic live acts like James Brown, had already resorted to fixing or dubbing live recordings to make them more commercial. The Beatles' own attempts at capturing a live recording at the Hollywood Bowl were almost completely drowned out by the volume of the audience, and their appearance at Shea Stadium was completely redubbed by the band for their film. In fact, it could be argued that the Beatles had already dabbled in the creation of a fake live recording, and with Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and its reprise, audience sounds were dubbed on. But I don't think these productions were meant to fool anyone, just create an atmosphere. Despite Glyn's suggestion of fixing or sweetening the live recording in post-production, Paul seems adamant that the audience should hear exactly what goes on tape, 
this ethos would be carried over to the Savile Row sessions later in the month, where all songs were intended to be captured as one live performance. But more on that later. George thinks they might as well get backing singers. John would like three male singers. George suggests they could get the Dallas boys. In 1957, the BBC abolished its so-called toddler's truce, a nanny state idea of ceasing broadcasting between 6 and 7pm to get children to bed. On a Saturday, this shutdown was replaced by the 6-5 special, a pioneering British television programme launched at a time when rock and roll and indeed television itself was still considered a passing fad. But at 6.05pm, hence the name, every Saturday, those teenagers lucky enough to have access to a TV could tune in to Josephine Douglas and Pete Murray introducing acts such as the resident band Don Lang and his Frantic Five, Petula Clark, Jim Dale, Johnny Dankworth, Tommy Steele, Marty Wilde and the act that George is referring to now, the Dallas Boys. Referred to in more recent years as Britain's first boy band, the Dallas Boys were a vocal group comprising four Leicester school friends, Joe Smith, Bob Bragg, Stan Jones and Leon Fisk, and London-born Nicky Clark. Having won a Butlin's Talent competition, they got a gig at Leicester Corn Exchange and from there they were spotted and invited to appear on the 6-5 special, where they soon became a fixture. That's how easy it was in those days, such was the lack of competition in the entertainment business. The Dallas Boys outlasted the TV show that launched them. Producer Jack Good moved on to ABC television and created another show, Oh Boy, and the Dallas Boys went with him becoming regular performers. Oh Boy became famous for launching the eight-decade-long career of Cliff Richard. Now established, the Dallas Boys continued to be regulars on TV into the 1960s, but eventually split in the 1970s. Their cabaret-style act may seem a little corny and dated now, but their vocal harmonies were flawless. Perhaps they could have supplied competent backing vocals on the Beatles' live show, as George only half-jokingly suggests here. John goes back to talking about Alex's phase pedal he wants to develop. Not that bad an idea, phaser pedals became commonplace in the 70s and 80s. As much as you on this. So then if we say we want phasing on the voices here. So you can here. do the voice too. Once yeah. we start yeah. moving really yes, it sounds like Ringo is getting impatient, tapping on the kit and then shaking the castanets vigorously. Glenn explains it's not a special mic that's causing electronic effects. He can mix in echo and reverb during the live show. Responding to the furious castanet shaking, Paul shouts a theatrical props. Vaguely in the background, you can hear George has received his morning flowers, as John puts it, from the Hare Krishna devotees. <laughs> Yeah, okay, let's do it. 
are you ready, Alf? We're just playing one, two, three, four. You, in, you come in as you hear the music playing. Just come in in rhythm, you know. John Garb was a vocal backing for the bridge of two of us. Paul asked him to think of something then. Paul calls for another run-through, but it's a false start. John isn't ready. Paul refers to him as Alf, which is possibly a reference to his dad. John plays the intro to Talking About You by Chuck Berry. Paul counts off another run-through. One, two, three, four. John and George opt for a, an OOR backing vocal on the bridges. George has an idea for the ending, but the guitars drift out of tune. a bit of a beetle ethos all parts of the song have to have strong ideas interesting use of the word encouraging the Beatles camaraderie returns when they know they're working on something good That's John commenting to himself when he's out of tune. Get a job. Slate 175, camera A, sync. You did that good, Alf. Yeah. It's great. John improvises a couple of lines over the intro to two of us. Really class, you know, class. Do what you did last night. Another run-through breaks down. Paul is now focusing on the descending guitar line, which accompanies the line, hard-earned pay. 
Paul wants something more complex, which George will eventually play on the released version. Seven six sync camera A. Another run through, barring interruptions on the feed, fumbled words and giggles. This is a spirited version with all the new parts in place. As we've discussed before, the Beatles always relied on the PA equipment that was supplied by whatever venue they were performing at. The results were variable at best. It's gone down in history that their performance in front of 56,000 screaming fans at Shea Stadium was relayed to the crowd via the stadium's own tannoy system. In those scream-drenched Beatlemania days, it didn't matter to the crowd that they couldn't hear the music. What was more important to them was the feeling of communion with so many of their peers and sharing this overwhelming tidal wave of emotion together. For the Beatles, though, the experience was extremely disheartening. Barely able to hear themselves, let alone each other, they'd often find themselves singing different verses to each other in the same song. Ringo famously shares an anecdote about watching John's bum bouncing up and down to help him keep time. However, the concert appearance three days after Shea Stadium at the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium proved to be a revelation. 
The Beatles landed at Atlanta Municipal Airport at 2pm flying in by a chartered aeroplane from Canada. Although the usual crowds of excited fans were there to greet them, they disembarked in a remote part of the airport and were ushered into three awaiting limousines. They were driven directly to the baseball stadium and assigned a locker room as their makeshift dressing room. Lacking air conditioning, the space was uncomfortably hot, this being Atlanta in August. Paul requested a fan be brought in, but it made little difference. They were, however, very impressed by the quality of the catering. Being served top sirloin, leg of lamb and pork loin, plus a dessert of fruit and apple pie. The food wasn't the only thing that impressed them that night. Atlanta hi-fi store Baker Audio had been commissioned to supply the sound system for the concert. No small task, considering they had to relay the stage sound from the pitch to around 34,000 enraptured fans. Baker Audio's boss, Duke Mewborn, brought every speaker he could get his hands on to the site, positioning them on first and third base. In total, he had four Alltech 1570 amplifiers, each giving a then impressive 175 watts of sound, and these powered the two stacks of Altec A7 speakers. At the time, this was an unprecedented amount of power and volume for a pop concert. On top of this, Baker Audio had thought to supply some foldback speakers for the band. As Mewborn later commented, I think what really impressed them was that they had enough monitors on stage so that they could hear what they were playing. We gathered every piece of equipment we could bag or borrow. We had two large clusters of loudspeakers at first base and third base and about 5,000 watts of amplification, but we couldn't anticipate how loud that crap really was. It was awesome. The type of monitoring used didn't exactly resemble the wedge-shaped speakers that became an industry standard in the 1970s and beyond. Grainy photographs of the show do not show, as is often reported, an array of speakers in front of the stage. So the sound coming back to the stage must have been from the columns of A7 speakers, some of which may have been pointing back at the band. Whatever the setup, there's no doubt that the Beatles were immediately impressed, as these two comments from Paul and John during the concert can attest. We'd like to carry on now. Ooh, it's loud, isn't it? Hey? Great. The next song we'd like to sing. Oh, it's crazy, can you hear it? <laughs> the Beatles played a tighter and more energetic set as a direct result. Afterwards, Brian Epstein suggested that Mewborn provide sound for the rest of the tour, but Mewborn declined the offer, but did request Epstein fill out a customer feedback card, headed, The sound system was... To which Brian replied, Excellent, without question, proved the most effective of all during our US tour 1965. And so sadly an opportunity was missed for the Beatles to become pioneers of high-volume, high-fidelity concert sound, and hence, they now find themselves rehearsing at Twickenham, attempting to generate a good live sound through a little club PA, with no monitoring, and lacking the expertise from anyone in their crew, not even Glyn Johns, on how to improve the situation. the sound to be better in the performance area. Monitoring is still a fairly new concept. Paul calls for them to rehearse Don't Let Me Down. 
Malos if they want to hear a playback of what they've just done. Despite this being the first time in a week of rehearsals that they've had this option, John declines the offer, preferring another cup of tea. Not that piss-pot stuff they serve here. John and Yoko have brought their own tea onto set. Before they begin, don't let me down. We'll leave them for now. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod. That's W-O-D-P-O-D. You can also interact with me on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, plus my Gmail, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please like and subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for listening and bye for now.